Welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? This is Carrie. And I'm Joe. Remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just Woody and Dutch on the slow train to Peking talking about 80s music. So give us a break. Oh, did you come up with that or did Dave put that in there? I put it in there. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Joe, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to you. Welcome to any new listeners. Welcome to any loyal listeners. And we found some in Cape May, New Jersey, Warsaw, Indiana, and Coimbra, Portugal. Yes, all of those folks. Please check out our Facebook at facebook.com slash HRT80S or our Twitter at HRT80S. Well, Joe, I have one tidbit for this week, and I want to know, we haven't discussed this. Have you heard about the Weird Al biopic that's coming out apparently sometime next year? I did hear about it. I saw the tweet from Weird Al. Uh-huh. I saw a picture that was posted recently. I think they're not happy about that leaking. Um, but yeah, let's talk about it. Yes. So Weird Al is apparently co-writing his own biopic for the Roku channel, which what in the world is that? <laughs> well, you know, people won't be asking that after the film debuts. <laughs> you think it's going to be a sensation? This is going to put Roku on the map. <laughs> I mean, I know what Roku is. I just didn't know that Roku had a channel that they were commissioning movies for. Carrie, why not? <laughs> Who know. doesn't have a streaming service? I'm going to get my own streaming service soon. Yeah. Well, Daniel Radcliffe is starring as Weird Al. When I first heard that, I was like, okay. But then this picture that you're talking about that leaked of him dressed as Weird Al, I mean, yeah, he's pulling it off, I guess, at least looks-wise. And Daniel Radcliffe seems like a real kind of weirdo sometimes. Did you ever see that movie he was in called Swiss Army Man? No, but I I read plenty of reviews and I know it's really <laughs> effed up. I saw it. It was really crazy. It was a really crazy movie. So I think he's kind of got a twisted brain. And then also this week, there were some um, pictures that came out. Evan Rachel Wood is starring as Madonna in the movie, which is probably like one scene. So it's strange that they are, you know. Got a big name. Yeah. They got that Roku money, baby. <laughs> so do you think you'll watch the Weird Al biopic on the Roku channel? I definitely will. Hmm. We also kind of got into it, right, Carrie, when we talked about Weird Al recently? Oh, you mean I said I, I'm i not a fan of Weird Al and you were mad at me? <laughs> you said he's not for me. Yeah. And yeah, I, I was mad for about a day. <laughs> he's one of those people that, yes, looking back on it, I can appreciate that he is actually a very good musician and obviously very creative. But yeah, I'm not listening to Weird Al songs. And it does annoy me whenever they come up in the rotation on Charlie's. And I have to talk <laughs> about them. <laughs> <laughs> I like him. I don't think I had any tapes or 45s from him, but I always was happy to see him pop up on TV. And sorry, I wanted to say that when he announced the movie, he said that it had been his vow to his fans. He wanted to release a major motion picture every 33 years like <laughs> clockwork. <laughs> that is funny. Referring to UHF, which was, you know, one of those bombs that is somehow adored. I mean, he is beloved by his fans, um, and that movie is beloved, so I don't begrudge him this. I probably will watch it at some point. Yay. And I don't know anything about him, so I guess I'll be interested to kind of see where he came from and what his story is. Well, we know he meets Madonna. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one thing. 
gosh. Okay, so let's see. I bet you this doesn't come out until like 2023. Yeah, there hasn't been like an announced release date, but the speculation is that it'll be sometime next year. Oh, so far away. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe by then Roku Channel will be the biggest streaming service in the world. Joe, I just looked up at the top of our outline and realized that this is episode 150. Wow. So you didn't get me a present? (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) That's a pretty big marker. I think we should say something about that. 150 episodes. That's a lot of us talking 80s music together. (laughs) Thank God that Google Drive hosts all the outlines. And I ask you sometimes, hey, did we ever talk about this person? Did we ever talk about that person? Oh, yeah, we did a whole episode about them. Like, <laughs> oh, when? How? I know. I, I'm usually pretty good about remembering, like, big topics that we've done, but it has gotten to the point where I do have to search sometimes and figure out if we've mentioned certain songs or certain people, including at the end of this episode, we're going to have a segment and we're going to talk about a very big song of the 80s. And I was like, I can't believe we've never talked about this song before, but there you go. I think I know why. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We'll get to it. (laughs) But other than that, you know, just that little marker, no big celebration for 150. We're just going to do a regular episode. And we have both chosen an artist to do a deep dive on. And my choice was Devo. So the name Devo itself comes from the concept of de-evolution, which the band thought reflected the current state of American society. Mankind had not continued to progress, but instead was moving backwards. Gerald Casal and some friends at Kent State University came up with this concept in the late 60s and produced a number of art pieces around the theme. Gerald met Mark Mothersbaugh in 1970, and they started the music group Devo as a continuation of that joking idea of de-evolution. But the band took a very serious turn after May 4th, 1970. On that day, the National Guard opened fire on a protest against the Vietnam War on Kent State's campus and killed four students. Gerald was there that day and saw the dead bodies of his friends. Suddenly, he and the other members of Devo wanted to use music to truly protest what they saw as the failings of the world. In those early days, the Devo lineup was ever-changing. Gerald's brother Bob joined on guitar, and Mark's brothers Bob and Jim also joined. Jim would eventually move into management. That was one cute thing. I learned that like a while ago when I was doing research for Charlie's, but I never knew that Devo had two sets of brothers in it, and I, I like that. That's cute. Yeah, I like that. I think it's sweet. I also, I'm so intrigued by how they got together and became a band and had this purpose, right? Like, how many acts do we talk about where there's something behind it? It's just like, you know, we wanted to make money or get girls, (laughs) and it's never anything quite so big. So good for them. Yeah. The group gained recognition when a music video they created for two of their songs, Secret Agent Man and Jocko Homo was shown at the Ann Arbor Film Festival in 1977 and won first prize. So they were on the cutting edge of music videos. David Bowie had been passed a Devo demo tape from someone he knew on the Akron music scene, and he helped them get a recording contract. He was even supposed to produce their first album, but he had to back out due to other commitments. Instead, Brian Eno stepped in. 
That album was released in August of 1978 and contained re-recordings of earlier singles like Jocko Homo. The name of the album, Q, colon, Are We Not Men, question mark, A, colon, We Are Devo, exclamation point. You sounded like you were (laughs) dictating a text. I know, exactly. (laughs) Was taken from the song's lyrics, and the song encapsulates the band's theory of de-evolution. Mark Mothersbaugh took the phrase from a religious pamphlet that said it was an absurd idea that men would descend from monkeys. I love everything about Devo. I love all of these little stories behind everything they do. They're obviously very smart individuals. Smarter than me. I'm intimidated. (laughs) I know. Well, Jocko Homo has also become a centerpiece of Devo's wild live performances, which are every bit a part of their overall art project vibe. You all know the red hats from the Whip It video, but Devo also often performs in jumpsuits. During Jocko Homo, they often take these off to reveal shorts and knee and elbow protectors, and a call and response of, are we not men? We are Devo, will devolve into monkey noises. I'm so glad you told me this in case I ever go to a show, because this would terrify me if I didn't know it was coming. (laughs) I would love to see Devo live. Truly, it sounds like one of the great live performances that you can catch. Did I ever show you that I got a 45 record adapter that's a little Devo hat? No! Oh, that's cute. It's so cute. Oh, I love it. And remember when, um, you know, COVID was brand new and they came out with their energy hat face masks, like the plastic shield. So you would be wearing a Devo hat in public, right? But with the face guard in front of it. Oh, I never saw that. I love that too. Can you imagine seeing someone wearing that though? I would die. No, you wouldn't. And that's the point. Devo performed Jocko Homo and their cover of I Can't Get No Satisfaction on Saturday Night Live on October 14th, 1978, just one week after the Stones themselves had appeared as guests. It's a bold move. Yeah. Around this time, former member Bob Lewis sued the band for compensation for his contributions to the band's early work, claiming a right in the intellectual property of the concept of de-evolution. The band eventually settled with Lewis, and the group's second album was a collection of songs they had been playing live for many years and gained them lots of airplay on K-Rock, the influential L.A. radio station. Their third album, released in May of 1980, was their breakthrough into the mainstream. Whip It was hugely popular on MTV and peaked at 14 on the Hot 100. It was also the number one song of the year, according to K-Rock listeners. 
but the album contains many other underrated classics like the title track Freedom of Choice and Girl You Want. Unauthorized book about the group claims that this song was directly inspired by the Knack's My Sharona, but Gerald Casal has denied that and specifically says of the book, which we won't even name here, to read it you would believe that Devo, that Mark and I, are a bunch of sub-IQ morons who stole every idea like robots or automatons from Bob Lewis who had all the ideas. This is so silly. It would be like if you had a good friend who was a nuclear physicist and he told you about string theory and you're sitting there ripping night after night smoking pot and string theory makes you go write songs and create a band right and this guy shows up and says, I showed them everything they know and those are my songs. So I guess we know how Gerald Casal feels about Bob Lewis. (laughs) What the hell, man? I know. Even his disses are too smart for me to understand. (laughs) I guess the point is like maybe this Bob Lewis like had a right. a hand in the idea of de-evolution, but that doesn't give him the right to like everything that the band created out of it. If you're not writing the songs or yeah. you're not playing on them, then what? Where's your right, Carrie? You're a lawyer. I know. <laughs> Would you throw this lawsuit out? Well, it's been a long time since I took entertainment law, which I did uh-huh. take in law school. Intellectual property is kind of muddy. It's hard to distill the idea of de-evolution down to something that you can say, I own the intellectual property on that. It's not something so unique that like people couldn't come up with it sort of like on their own. I was interested to find out that he had sued them and they had settled. They probably were just like, get out of here, you know? (laughs) But it's funny that then he, I guess, has continued to sort of try to assert that idea into the world. Bob Lewis, get a life. Anyways, enough drama. Their next album, New Traditionalists, was released in August of 1981. The song Through Being Cool was an attack on the fans that had loved Whip It without really understanding what the band's message was about. Being Cool reached number 107 on the Bubbling Under chart and 32 on the Dance chart. Five of Devo's songs would peak on the Bubbling Under chart over the years. They were huge on that chart, but yeah. <laughs> not on really not any others. Other. <laughs> After their sixth album flopped in 1984, they were dropped by their record label, and Mark Mothersbaugh started composing music for TV shows like Pee Wee's Playhouse, and drummer Alan Myers left the band. They would regroup later in the 80s, and their comeback project was composing the music for the soundtrack of a horror movie called Slaughterhouse Rock, starring Tony Basil. <laughs> what? Do you remember we talked about Tony Basil in another, like, schlock horror movie she was in? Do you remember that? I saw one. Was it Rockula? Rapula. Rapula. Yes! But I, I don't know if that was a horror movie. That was, like, a parody or something. It was a musical 
I don't even know what it was. Yeah, well, I guess she kept doing that. She was so good in it, though. That's right. I mean, I remember watching the clip of her, like, dancing in it or something and thinking, yeah, "Yeah, it was pretty cool, but I never watched the whole movie. Did you see that one on Tubi, Joe? (laughs) No. Our friend George and Sheila had an outdoor Halloween movie. They always pick up a movie to watch outside. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, here is a taste of the song Man Turned Inside Out from Slaughterhouse Rock. No. It's actually not that bad. I mean, it just sounds like a Devo song. Devo has broken up and reconvened many times over the years. Bob Casal passed away in 2014, but these days Gerald and Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh tour together with a few added members. Devo is nominated for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the third time this year. So let's hope that they finally make it in. That would be nice. Yeah. Devo is a band that I never was a fan of. I didn't dislike them, but, you know, of course, all I knew really was Whip It. But over the years, every song I hear by them sounds different. I think if you hear a song by Devo, you would say you would be able to say that's by Devo, but not all Devo songs sound alike. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. So I really appreciate them and the breadth of their catalog and all of the ideas that are behind their music. There's a reason why they have such a like cult following and I'm into it. I am a Devo, whatever Devo people call themselves. Devotee. <laughs> You're right. Right? I'm you a think that's devotee. it? Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's crazy? I know you did mention how Mark Mothersbaugh, you know, did music for film and TV. If you looked at his list of all the movies he's done music for, yeah. it's so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've probably seen 10 to 20 of these movies, right? Yes, and some really big movies that were favorites of mine. Like, I know for sure he does the music for, I don't know if all the Wes Anderson movies, but at least like Royal Tenenbaums, right? I couldn't even tell you because the list is so long. Yeah. I can't scroll and, and check these. It's just insane. That's what's crazy, too, is like, think about the fact that like he has had such a huge impact on, you know, music just as part of Devo, but then that, yeah, he had this whole second career where he was composing music for movie and TV. He composed music for Pee-wee's Playhouse. I mean, that is such a huge part of my childhood that when I found out that he was part of that, I was just like, oh my God. I mean, this is someone that is like near and dear to my heart just for that reason. And he did the music for Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums and 200 Cigarettes. Oh my gosh. Well, there you go. Amazing. Well, that was very informational. I knew really nothing about Devo. Mm -hmm. Just thought it's those guys with the hats. I will say that the vinyl collector page I'm on on Facebook, I feel like everyone every day, all day long is posting pictures of their Devo records. And I'm always like, how many records are there? It's another (laughs) album cover I've never seen, right? Yeah. I think I did send you one once upon a time where they looked really hot on the cover. (laughs) And you were like, grow up. Do you remember that at all? I don't remember that, no. But I'm glad you enjoyed their physical looks, Joe. Oh my god. Calling me out. Don't make me tell everyone um, what picture you sent me this week from the backup oh or my god, front Shut up. up. <laughs> Sorry. 
squeeze <laughs> record. Yeah, I was just so surprised to see that. You know the front of the album, right? It's the one where they're called like UK squeeze, but some just oh, say squeeze, yep, and it's yep. a close up of a muscle man, exactly, right? You don't see yep, his head; yep, it's just yep. zoomed right in. Well, on the back cover, all five members are in basically their underwear making muscle man poses, right? Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah, there's some pretty prominent parts of their body, I guess we'll just say. (laughs) I am shocked. I'll tell it. I zoomed in on one person and sent it to Carrie and said, Glenn Tilbrook is really taking it to Bulge City. (laughs) It's crazy. Everyone needs to Google UK squeeze back cover and take a look at this and you will. You won't be sorry. All right, Joe, we got to move on to who you've chosen for a deep dive. And I'm just shocked that you are are. wanting to speak about this person. Yes. I gave you the choice. (laughs) I said to Carrie, I said, who should I do? Billy Idol or Ricky Lee Jones? And what did I say? You do you. Exactly. And I knew what that meant. And I'm here for it. Okay, good. Good deal. Okay. So uh, this is something we've alluded to in the past few episodes, I think, where If I hear a song by someone from the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever, I hear the one song and then I become obsessed, listen to it over and over, and then I try to find their back discography and then listen to that over and over, and then it usually causes a fight in the house or my (laughs) husband to say, no more Ricky Lee Jones, or we put on music for the night. I'm like, what do you want to listen to? Not Ricky Lee Jones. (laughs) It's happened quite a bit. So this one was a slow burn, I think, because it all started when I heard a letter on American Top 40. I think it was a countdown from maybe like 83 or 84, sometime around there. And it was one of those, a listener writes in and wants to know, whatever happened to Ricky Lee Jones? Hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a good question, because I kind of know that name. But like, who is she? And this will tell me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So he talked about her having a really big hit. And then he talked about what she's been doing now. And then he even talked about how she was on drugs and she had to kick them. And I remember going to her Wikipedia page. I'm like, I don't see any of that on here. Like, where did they get this info, right? yeah. I was pretty intrigued. But then, thank goodness, they don't always do this. But then he played her big hit. And I was like, this song's great. I love it. You know, sometimes they just say whatever happened to and then... They answer it, and then they move on to the next song. But this was a rarity. So that's how that happened, and that's how I grew to love her, and that's why I'm talking about her today. And so we're going to start with her history. I tried to really (laughs) edit some of this down. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm very interested, honestly. I want to hear all of this stuff that you've been kind of alluding to. I want to know the whole story. Okay. So she was born on November 8th, 1954 in Chicago. She was one of four children born to Richard and Betty Jones. She was named after her father, Richard, who was a singer-songwriter himself, although not a successful one. But showbiz did run in the family because Ricky Lee's paternal grandfather was Frank Pegleg Jones, a vaudevillian who specialized in singing and ukulele, as well as acrobatics and soft shoe. Because apparently if you were on vaudeville, you needed like 800 specialties, right? Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. So a lot of the information I got about her childhood is available in her memoirs. Is it her memoir or her memoirs? I think her memoir. But there's a lot of memories in it. (laughs) Okay, Joe, whatever you do, you. (laughs) 
Um, anyway, the book is called Last Chance Texaco Chronicles of an American Troubadour. And I'm here to tell you, she really went through it when she was growing up. She moved around and ran away so many times, it was really hard for me to keep track of where she was at any point. And also sad, she was not a great student, but every time she went to a new school where it seemed like she might flourish, then the whole family would move somewhere else completely different. And I couldn't even tell you how many different schools she got taken out of. And so, like I mentioned, she also ran away many times. And by 15, she was hitchhiking up and down California and attending music festivals. And at one point, was living in a cave community. Joe, what's a cave community? (laughs) Well, it's these people that she knew and they decided we are going to live in a cave and have all these cave principles, right? Oh, my God. Mm, and okay. return to the cave, right? You you come to the cave. If you need to leave, you can come back at any time. There was even a reunion of the cave people, but only one person showed up. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was very, very odd. <sighs> this, is, this is already a trip. I can't wait I to know. keep going. Yeah. Okay, so by the way, I'm talking about when she was 21 now. So basically everything between like the ages of like 12 and 20 were like harrowing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, just pretty bad stuff, okay? I don't want to be a bummer. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense. If she's out on her own and living in cave communities, I can't imagine what was going on. <laughs> Carrie, would you ever join me in a cave community? Well, you know what? You're probably the only person on Earth that could get me to live in a cave community, but it would uh, it would be a very tough sell. It, it's never going to happen. You know why? Why? Salamanders. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be able to deal with any of the wildlife in the cave. <laughs> When Ricky Lee was 21, she was living in Venice and performing around town. She passed up an offer to write songs for a music publisher to earn $800 a month, even though she was dirt poor and it was getting pretty close to her self-imposed deadline to make it big in the music business. When she was performing around town and taking odd jobs, you know, to make money, Mm -hmm. she was running out of money. She couldn't do it. She was going to move back home with her mom if she couldn't make it by like, you know, X date, right? Mm -hmm. But she passed up this deal. She thought there was something better coming. And she was really right because she soon signed to Warner Brothers Records under the stipulation that Lenny Waronker would be her producer. She had seen his name on the back of a Randy Newman album and had a feeling that he would be the person that would be essential to her success in the music world. Have you heard of... Um, Lenny Waronker. I feel like that name kind of tickles something, but I couldn't tell you anything about him. Yeah, I should have Googled more, but I know that he was maybe the head of Warner Brothers and a music producer. Uh, I think he produced that Randy Newman album. And then his daughter is the lead singer of that dog, Anna Waronker. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep. So Ricky and Lenny worked together on that debut album, and they became friends. She says that he even kept a photo of her on her desk until he left Warner Brothers. Or at least he got it out when she visited, right? (laughs) (laughs) I really admire that. That's so brave that she turned down that money because she wanted to do it on her own terms, you know, and make it. She even said, you know, I she was about to do it. Everyone was like, what are you crazy? You know, the guy was angry at her. Mm-hmm. 
and her friend who'd set up the meeting, he was pissed too. She says, you know, I thought there was something else. And within months, I had like New Deal and a publishing company. Wow, amazing. Finally, we can discuss her self-titled debut album. Released on February 28th, 1979, Warner Brothers took a new approach to marketing Ricky Lee Jones. They filmed a movie featuring a fictionalized version of Ricky Lee and her friends hanging out on the streets and performing three songs from the album. Since there was no MTV at the time, Warner Brothers installed monitors in record stores all over the country that would play this video over and over and over. She even says in the book, she's like, you would just go to a record store and my face would be up there, like singing. She's like, it was creepy. That's wild. I know. I wonder how many other videos they played. Was it really just hers on a loop? I don't know. Imagine the people that worked in those record stores. They probably hated Oh my gosh. Yes. Someone call (laughs) us. Tell us what, what was going on. And the movie, I made Dave watch it again last night. Um, <laughs> is it like a movie? Like, it, does it have a through line or it's literally just like three videos back to back? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is there like a narrative to it? Yes and no. Okay. okay. So if you watch it, it starts out, looks like a teenager's bedroom that's empty, right? Mm-hmm. And it pans over and it tells you the name of the film is Coolsville. And then it cuts to shots of people out on the street. I don't want to say they're living on the street, but they want you to think like the streets are their home. Like this is what they do. Like trash can fires, Uh (laughs) people like gambling, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then she sees a guy, but she's with another guy. But by the end, she's with the new guy. Mm. But there's no dialogue, right? Okay, okay. It's just the three songs playing. So you never watched it? No, I didn't. You got to watch it. I will. I will. She was also booked to play Saturday Night Live the week the album was released. Although she says in the book, they didn't want her to play the song Coolsville. And she almost walked off the set, but then they agreed at the last minute. So she played one song, waited backstage, and was told they were going to tell her she couldn't do it. So she was like, do I leave? What happened? And then like, right before she went on, they were like, okay, you can do Coolsville. I bet she was frazzled. Well, the real thing come and the real thing go. Well, uh, the real thing is back in town. Ask me if you want to know the way to Coolsville. She was also mad that the set designers put a trash can out because they were trying to like recreate the vibe Uh of that video and everything. And she's like, I felt like they were saying I was garbage. Oh. So Chucky's In Love, that was the first single released. And that's the song that they played on AT40. That made me look into her history. And that one peaked at number four. I just can't believe it. I can't either. It's a good song, but it's just 
so sedate. I don't know how what else to say. It's just like, that doesn't sound like a pop song. It doesn't sound pop. Yeah. And then I can't remember if this was in the book or somewhere else, but she's like, who would have thought that basically the song stops and I start talking and who knew that radio was going to want to play that, right? Yeah, yeah. But they did. And another single, Young Blood, peaked at just number 40. She was nominated for five Grammy Awards in 1980, winning Best New Artist. And what I find most interesting is that the Song of the Year nomination went to album cut Last Chance Texaco. I thought those were usually awarded to, like, singles. Yeah, that's wild. Wow. I wonder if it was still like it is now, where the song had to be submitted by somebody at the label. I have no idea. I have no idea. It's more wild to think of people just voting for it. What's the word I'm looking for? Unprovoked. Unprompted. Unprompted. (laughs) But that's a good song, too. I like that. But it's on choice. Her next album was Pirates, and that was released in 1981. And some of the songs are about her breakup with musician Tom Waits. We don't want to talk about that, right? No, I think that's an interesting piece, but she's not defined by a man. Right, right, right. Um, It was odd for him to pop up, though, in Licorice Pizza while I was reading the book and obsessed Ah. with her. I'm like, what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Rolling Stone gave the album Pirates a five-star review, which was a rare occasion back then. But if you look at all the albums, they've gone back and like retroactively graded. There are a ton of five-star reviews now. Rolling Stone, whatever. I think it was just the third album to get a five-star review from a contemporary review. Very impressive. One single, A Lucky Guy, charted on the Hot 100 at number 64. And you can hear this one on Charlie's 80s Attic. Amazing. After this album's release and tour, Jones spent some time kicking her heroin and cocaine addictions. In 1984, she released her third full-length studio album, The Magazine, which included her last single to hit the Hot 100, The Real End. That one peaked at number 82 and is another song you can hear on The Attic, a new edition. Yeah, I haven't heard that one come up yet. That's the one you texted me and said, Ricky. Oh, so I did hear it. (laughs) Yeah. Although it received rave reviews, it didn't sell as well as the first two albums, and Ricky Lee would not release another album until 1989's Flying Cowboys, which was produced by one of her musical idols, Walter Becker of Steely Dan. The single Satellites appeared on the newish Modern Rock Tracks chart at number 23. Promotional copies of that album included an interview with Ricky Lee Jones, which would be extensively sampled by British electronic act The Orb on their song Fluffy Little Clouds. Ricky Lee's record company was upset with the unauthorized use of her voice and planned to sue. The Orb's record company ended up settling out of court, and recently when asked about The Orb, Ricky Lee called them those f***ers. So she's not happy still, right? Yeah. I had never heard Little Fluffy Clouds before, but I think the Orb is one of those names I would see a lot in like Rolling Stone and Spin in the 90s. Uh Uh-huh. I've never, I never heard it before either. Guys like when you were young. They went on forever. We lived in Arizona and this guy's always had little fluffy clouds. 
This is so wild. I like it. When I was reading about this, I'm like, well, I don't, I mean, how did she even know about this, right? Because uh-huh. who all could have heard this song? But then after researching, I found out that the song would eventually peak at number 10 in the UK in 1993. It had been re-released quite a few times. And the song was ranked number 275 in NME's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. That is crazy. Oh, because you don't like the song, I bet. (laughs) I understand it's like sample. It's like a sample of anything, right? You know, you find something you want to use and you use it. But like, if like literally just the backbone of your song is like one person and an interview about their life, that they just take like one line of hers and, you know, overdub it or whatever. Like it's her talking for huge periods of the song. I just can't believe that they would do this and not think that she would be upset or want credit or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, I don't know. There's more info about it where someone with the orb claims that they paid $5,000 to somebody for the use of it, right? But who was that person and why isn't that (laughs) on the books, right? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't Ricky. Maybe it was Tom Waits. But yeah, when you sent that to me earlier this week, you were like, listen to this and don't do any research. So I listened to it after I had listened to some Ricky yesterday. And I was like, oh, this must be her. And I just assumed she was a part of it. And so now to hear this, I'm like, that sucks. Rude. Yeah. Well, Ricky closed out the 80s by winning a Grammy for her duet with Dr. John, a cover of the song Making Whoopi. And continued putting out records, and she still records and tours today. Amazing. What an amazing life. You know what else is crazy? She's one of these people where every time I see a picture of her, I'm like, is that her? That ain't her. (laughs) She just looks different in every picture. Funny. Yeah, so we've talked before about, you know, I tried to listen. Well, I did listen to her first album, and I told you it didn't really grab me. And we had talked about how I needed to listen to Pirates. So yesterday I put Pirates on, I was listening to it in my headphones, and it grabbed me from the very first song. I was like, this sounds epic. Pirates sounds like a soundtrack to a movie. It could be a movie is how I feel about it, exactly. Yes, and I didn't read a whole lot about it, but then I was reading a little bit about it. And like you're talking about, it's about a breakup with musician Tom Waits. And I looked at some of the lyrics to the songs, and there's like different characters that are kind of mentioned in several different songs. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a full story, you know? And I want to go back now and like listen to the whole album, like thinking about it being like an actual like story of something. I only listened to it a couple times, and I wasn't, like, keeping track of the songs as I was listening, so I can't give you specific examples. But there was a lot of them that I was like, this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me a lot of, which obviously, again, is the inverse, but I am familiar with Tori Amos first. So I kept thinking to myself, this sounds like Tori Amos. But it's very obvious that Tori Amos was influenced by Ricky Lee Jones in some manner because this is the predecessor to her. That's funny because I was thinking, I was telling Dave that she reminded me of Fiona Apple. 
Oh, that too. Yes. She just was doing whatever she wanted. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about Chucky's in Love and the success of that song and that first album, I feel like the next album was, well, I'm going to do something 100% different. And that is what it was. Like, I think the first album was so sparse and just quiet that I said it didn't grab me. But like the thing about the songs on Pirates is that they still have the same mood. I mean, they're not rockers, you know, they're not blasting at you. But the instrumentation behind them is so much more full that they sound bigger and like epic, more epic just because of the instrumentation, as opposed to her changing the way she sings. Yeah. yeah. The drums on the first song, We Belong Together, I yeah. they just, it gives me chills when they kick in. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. <sighs> Yay. Oh, that makes my heart so happy. <laughs> well, we've finally gotten the full story on Ricky Lee Jones, and it didn't disappoint. I was nice. really into it. Yay. Great. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Joe. Well, we have one more segment that we teased up front. It is the segment we call Coming Around Again, where we cover songs that were released or recorded twice. And we're going to talk about one of the most recognizable songs of the 80s that actually has multiple versions. Katrina and the Waves started as a band called Just The Waves back in 1975 in Cambridge, England. Guitarist Kimberly Rue and drummer Alex Cooper played together in that band, but Rue left to join a different one, and Cooper joined a band called Mama's Cookin'. Oh, <laughs> I love everything about that name. <laughs> yep, they were mostly a cover band, and they had an American named Katrina Leskanich on vocals. After Rue's other band fell apart, Cooper recruited him to join Mama's Cooking, and they changed the name back to The Waves to reflect Cooper and Rue's previous collaboration. I gotta correct you there, Carrie. Yeah? You said Mama's Cooking. It's Mama's Cooking. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yep. Mm. (laughs) There's no G. And, And one more thing. The name, is it like a noun? Like, oh, I love Mama's Cooking. Or is it like... Oh, yeah. You know, a warning like mama's cooking. <laughs> I think the second one. I think the second one. <laughs> well, Rue took over vocal duties for all of the original material he brought to the band, and Katrina continued to sing on the cover tunes, but soon enough, Rue was writing original material for her to sing. They renamed themselves Katrina and the Waves around 1982 and recorded, on their own dime, an album simply to have something to sell at their gigs. They shopped the album around and were able to get it released through Canadian record company Attic Records. Love that name. Mm-hmm. This debut album, titled Walking on Sunshine, was released December 1st, 1983, and contains the original version of the song. And here's a clip. This version has a rock vibe rather than a straight pop, and the horns that would define the later version are missing. I didn't miss them. Oh, you didn't? No. What did, so what did you think about this version? You know, I think I was just, my ears were so delighted to hear 
a version that's not the version yeah. I've heard 9 billion times in my life. Yeah. So yep. immediately I was like, well, I prefer this. I know. I had the exact same reaction. <laughs> I listened to it. I was like, I really like this. And then I'm like, I'm probably just glad to yeah. not hear what we've heard a million times over. And you know me, I love horns, but I, did, I didn't miss them. I thought this was good. And it is faster. And it's like, you know, it actually sounds more peppy and exciting than the version that we all know, which can you believe that? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> So that album from the band also contains the song Going Down to Liverpool, which would be covered by the Bangles for their 1984 debut album. Walking on Sunshine, the song and the album, became quite popular in Canada, and the band toured there and released a follow-up album in the country before signing an international deal with Capitol in 1985. The album they released on Capitol in 85, called Simply Katrina and the Waves, consisted solely of re-recorded, remixed, or overdubbed versions of songs from the two albums released on Attic. Walking on Sunshine was entirely re-recorded into the famous version you know today. There's a clip in case you've never heard Walking on Sunshine. <laughs> and if you haven't, can I be you? <laughs> The producer says they did loads of versions of the song. We kept redoing it nonstop. And with respect to the horns, Katrina said, as we were recording it, an arranger wandered in and said, you should put horns on that. <laughs> and he hummed what became that pumping melody. But the horn section we got in winged so much about how hard it was to play that we had to drop the key just for them. Who is this wandering arranger? Was he a ghost? I bet it was a ghost <laughs> that wanders the studio. I was like, you should put horns on that. <laughs> it was like the guy that they eventually hired to do the horns, and he's like wearing a hat and a mustache. He's like, you should put horns on that. And then he stands outside, and they're like, anybody play horns? And he pops in, and he's like, I do. Uh, well, not very well if they can't do the key. <laughs> I know. Like, do your job, horn people. The record company wanted to release Do You Want Crying as the first single, but after they sent out a sampler of songs, all the DJs that heard Walking on Sunshine said that was the hit because they could talk over the intro and it had the right energy for summer. It was released in March of 1985 and peaked at number nine on the Hot 100, 21 on both the adult contemporary and the rock chart, and 19 on the dance chart. The band was nominated for the Best New Artist Grammy, but lost to Sade. Oh, thank God. <laughs> and the song has been featured in millions of TV shows, movies, and ads. Even today, the song nets about $200,000 per year being sold for use in ads. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, any ad people out there listening, get a new song. Or get the original version of the song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Walking on Sunshine, like I said, I couldn't believe we had never talked about it. But, you know, I can believe it because it's so overplayed and so burnt that it's like, what is there to say? But exactly. I actually I was really interested to hear the story about it being released in this original version. I think I do like it better because the other one is overexposed. Original is leaner and, and more fun. Yeah. Well, that's it, Joe. We don't uh, have a tease for next week. There will be a next week. Don't worry about that. 
Uh, anything else you want to share here at the end for the listeners, Joe? I don't think I have anything. The sooner we wrap it up, the sooner I can listen to Ricky Lee Jones. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's get you to it. You, you have to wrap us up. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope that you're well and safe and be kind to yourself and to others. And we love you. Yes. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Like a surgeon. 